Morning. I'm impressed by your kids. Out of the mouths of babes, right? How many kids read verse, quoted verses? Good number, right? Um, anyway, kudos to the uh, Sunday school staff. Uh, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll discuss the topic. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your book, your book which uh, is an authenticated message from you, that we know, Father, when we look at the pages of thy word, we are seeing truth, that the one who defines reality has revealed reality to us, namely you. So, Father, we thank you that we can look on this supernatural book, this supernaturally engineered gift from you to us, and we just rejoice, Father, that you chose to reveal yourself to us and that you did so in the person of your Son. In Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen. So uh, I keep forgetting to mention some websites to you uh, that you should uh, bookmark if you have an interest in this, this kind of thing. Um, Associates for Biblical Research, their website is Bible Archaeology. They spell archaeology the English way <laughs> with the extra A in there, I think. Um, there are two types of apologetic organizations. There are advocacy groups, and then there are original research groups. So, um, and the difference being this. An original research group would have their own archaeologists. They would have, uh, or they might have their own geologists or paleontologists. The Institute for Creation Research, Henry Morris's outfit, is one of those type of outfits, uh, icr.org. They have their own scientists who work on their staff or do research for them. They're an original research type of group. Associates for Biblical Research is another one of those type of groups. They do their own research. They're an archaeology outfit. So they have their own digs. They sponsor their own digs. Uh, both these groups are very successful. And in particularly in the case with Associates for Biblical Research, they are one of the leading archaeological institutions in the world. They produce a magazine called Bible in the Spade, uh, Bible in Spade, and they are a high view of scripture organization. They are gospel preaching organization. And to give you an idea of how successful they've been, they've found the oldest copy of scripture that has ever been found in the world. These are hard hitters. And by the way, it was one of your archaeologists, a brethren archaeologist, guy in one of these uh, assemblies up in New Jersey, who found that oldest copy of scripture, a brother by the name of Gordon Franz if you've ever heard that name. So the magazine they produce is Bible and Spade, and they're a little outfit. Uh, and by the way, they have a lot of credibility in uh, nations in the Middle East. Uh, Turkey likes them, and Egypt likes them, and Syria, and Jordan, and Lebanon, and Israel like them. And why do they like them? Because they've never removed one artifact. When they find it, they immediately turn it over to the, the host nation. All they want is the rights to the research. So they're a good outfit, and I highly recommend them especially since I just joined their board. So, <laughs> um, Lifeandland.org is uh, an archaeology uh, uh, website as well. It's actually Gordon Franz's own website. Now, it's a little technical, um, but you want to know that our people do original research, so that's another site to keep in mind. Now, Answers in Genesis, that's Ken Ham's outfit. It's chaired by a brother named uh, George Landis, I believe. He's on the board of Jackson Hole Bible College. Answers in Genesis and Christian Evidences, which is my website, ChristianEvidences.org, we're advocacy groups. I don't do my own research. I don't run out and do my own paleontological work or my own geology work. I'm just totally plagiarizing. I mean, leveraging the work of others. Um, but I'm an advocate group. In other words, I like to tell folks about what others are finding. That's my role. I don't do the research. I just market what others have done. Answers in Genesis is that same type of organization. They don't necessarily have their own geologists, but they are phenomenal at marketing the research of others. And of course you know about the museum out in Kentucky that's, uh, that Answers in Genesis is behind. They do a great job at, at marketing the findings of, of believers and organizations like ICR. So these are five good websites to know of. Um, and. I'm not trying to equate my ministry to Answers in Genesis. I'm a little guy. They're gigantic. So uh, uh, anyway, these are websites for you to be aware of, and this is mine. Uh, almost all of the stuff that we go through this weekend 
will eventually be on this website. Um, for some reason, it's uh, I've asked uh, s some folks who know a lot more about web stuff than I do to take my PowerPoints and put them online. And I'm realizing there's I've uh, got to get a little bit better way of taking PowerPoints and making them web consumable. So I've got uh, a young lady at Emmaus Bible College who's working on that for me. So, um, and by the way, in case you don't know this, the reason I'm probably visiting with you is because I went to school with Dave and Julio and Lisa so uh, at Emmaus Bible College. So I'm a big fan of the Bible College if you're thinking about going off to a Bible College. I would encourage you to look at Emmaus. All right. So with all that out of the way, what we want to do today is look at evidence for Christ's resurrection. And the evidence is compelling. Um, and we're going to approach this much like we would a, a legal case in a court of law. Um, I work in Morgan Stanley's Information Risk Oversight Group. Uh, for about 10 or 11 years, I worked in their Information Security Office. And every time a lawsuit came into play uh, against Morgan Stanley, we had a few of those, um, it would involve us uh, having to leverage our legal staff. And I got quite familiar with how lawyers do their trade. Um, but uh, what we want to do is we want to tackle the evidence for whether Christ rose from the grave or not and uh, kind of do it like we were presenting it in a court of law. So that's what we'll try to do this morning. I want you to understand the centrality of the resurrection. Our entire faith hinges upon that event. If Christ did not rise from the grave, then what we're doing here is an absolute waste of time. Our whole faith stands or falls on whether or not Christ rose from the grave. And if you doubt that, you've got to read the words of Paul right here. Paul says, if he didn't rise from the grave, forget everything else about him. This faith is a waste of time. 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are, also, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Understand that the first century church believed the things they did about Jesus Christ because they were convinced He rose from the grave. They believed that Christ's resurrection proved everything He said about Himself. And you know what? They were absolutely right. The entire Christian faith stands or falls upon whether or not Christ rose from the grave. And that's what they believed. And that's certainly what the apostles said. And what else did the apostles say? The apostles not only said, do I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave? They said one other thing. And by the way, I saw Him. I saw the risen Christ after He was crucified. And that's why they were so willing to carry this message forth. They believe it substantiated everything He said about Himself, that He was the Messiah. And they took that message forth, and as you'll see, every last one of them paid for their lives. We're close to it. So let's look at the evidence that um, Christ rose from the grave. We're going to look at four types of evidence, and we'll try to race through this. Physical evidence, eyewitness testimony, circumstantial evidence, and expert testimony. The exact same four types of testimony or four types of evidence you'd see in a typical court of law. What's physical evidence? Well, physical evidence is things you can touch. Today we talk about spent shell casings. Uh, you better believe that if the FBI and the state of Massachusetts uh, state troopers and uh, a bunch of other agencies were pouring all over that marathon site looking for physical evidence. You're trying to find DNA or... or uh, spent shell casings if it involved a handgun, which it did not, but um, physical evidence, things you can get your hands on that you can look at and examine. We're going to look at physical evidence uh, of Christ's resurrection. Eyewitness testimony, uh, another type of evidence. You want to see what people saw and said. That comes into play when you're, you're looking at examining whether or not an event took place or not. You want to look at circumstantial evidence. You know what circumstantial evidence is? Does anybody here... You were here last night, right? Um, remember we heard lots of thunder? And it sounded like something was pounding on the roof? Now, we didn't have the windows open, so we didn't actually look outside to see if it was raining. 
but we had circumstantial evidence that it was raining outside. Now, if uh, Isaiah comes strolling in out from the outside and he's got a raincoat on and he's covered in water, that's more circumstantial evidence that what's going on, that it's raining outside. Circumstantial evidence. Uh, by the way, lots of trial cases are won and lost on circumstantial evidence. And then we're going to look at expert testimony. We're going to look at these four types of evidence as it relates to the resurrection of Christ to see if we can't prove that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Look at three types of physical evidence. Stone, seals, and swords. It's my little attempt at uh, alliteration, I guess. Is that alliteration? S's? Anyway, let's read this passage. It's Matthew 27. When Joseph had taken the body, this is after the Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified and yielded up the ghost. When, Jesus, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Now, by the way, this is one of those really ironic statements in the Bible. His enemies, priests and the Pharisees, gather together to Pilate, and they say to Pontius Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. The reason why I say this is one of the most ironic statements in, in the Scripture, his own disciples didn't even get it. And yet his enemies understood exactly what he was saying. But they didn't get it. People who knew him best didn't understand his prophecy he was going to rise from the grave. Isn't that weird? So they come to Pontius Pilate and they ask him, command that the tomb may be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, there's been plenty of commentaries written about this next sentence, really the next two sentences. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. In the Greek, it really comes through well in the Greek, he is very sarcastic to them. He's actually, it's almost as if, and I've seen commentators talk about this, it's almost as if he's saying to them, look, go ahead and take the guard. I don't know if this is going to help. Remember what's happened to him when he's having the interchange with Christ. If you, if you ever get a harmony of the Gospels, which kind of lays out the four Gospels in chronological order, you watch how desperate Pilate becomes by the end of the day, or leading up by the early morning, I should say, to not have to send Christ to the cross. He is so disturbed by his interchanges with Christ that he's starting to think, you know, maybe there is something to this guy here. His wife sends him a message saying, no, I have nothing to do with this guy. He hears that he claims to be the Son of God, and on top of all that, he's watching how utterly composed Christ is with this horribly mangled body already, after the abuse he suffered, and yet how utterly composed he is in the, in, in the midst of this trial. And he is disturbed by Christ. And you really see as he goes on, he gets desperate to get out of having to send Christ to the cross. So... Some commentators say, and I kind of agree with this, it's almost as if he's starting to think, you know, I'm not so sure this is going to make any difference. The other debate that you'll see in the commentators, uh, the commentaries, I should say, is what guard is he releasing to them? Some will say, well, he was letting the Jews who have their own guard go make it secure. I'm convinced that that's wrong. I think what he's in fact doing is he's releasing to them Roman soldiers. And the reason why I think it's a Roman guard is because of this next sentence. He says, you have a guard, go your way and make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Sealing something is a uniquely Roman thing. It's not something the Jews did. To seal something meant you were going to put a Roman insignia upon it and the full weight of the Roman Empire was going to go behind it. That if you broke that seal, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Jews didn't do that. I'm pretty convinced this is a Roman guard that Pilate releases to them. Let's take a closer look at some of these things. If you come with me to Israel, 
later this year. I'm going to go October 31st. Uh, uh, we're going to leave Halloween, come back on Veterans Day or the day before Veterans Day. But uh, when we go to Jerusalem, you're going to see these tombs all over the place. These are first century tombs, and they have these massive stones. It's about two tons. It's like the Volkswagen, the weight of a Volkswagen. <laughs> you know, they, uh, and the typical first century tomb, especially for the rich, the way it would work is there'd be a trough kind of running on a slant, and this heavy stone would be laid against it, and it would be propped up, and once the person had been buried, you'd remove the prop and then force the stone down this angle so it would block the entrance to the tomb. Um, and most archaeologists uh, say there's no doubt this is the type of tomb that the Lord would have been buried in. Uh, that stone, um, again, typical stone, first century wealthy burial site, would have weighed about two tons. Um, it's theorized that when... a They'd bury somebody, and about a year later, you would hire people to collect the bones from the person after they had decayed over the course of the year. That typically a burial detail that would come back a year later to collect the bones and put them in a little ossuary, take about 20 guys to move that stone. Uh, that's what we see from Jewish writings in the first century. So this is a, this is a tough thing. Uh, this is a stone. It's, a, it's what the Lord, no doubt, was, uh, was buried in. Here's what we think the Roman seals look like. And by the way, um, we've uh, uh, a lot of what I'm going to share with you this morning comes from Roman army field manuals that have been collected from the first century, Roman army military practices. We think the seal that would have been, strung, would have been uh, put in front of the, the tomb would have been a, a, a rope sealed with wax that would have gone on the outside of the rope. And um, understood this, or understand this, that to break the seal, you were going to suffer the penalty of death. The full weight of the Roman Empire was behind the seal. And um, so they're basically saying, don't mess with this. And by the way, a Roman guard, one of the things they would do before they would seal something is they would go check out the contents of the thing they were seeing, the vault they were sealing. And why are they doing that? Because now their lives are on the line if that seal gets broken or whatever is on the inside is stolen out. Again, we know from Roman field manuals that the Roman army, when they would send a detachment of guards to protect something, typically what was used, certainly in Judea, but typically around the Mediterranean world, was 16 soldiers. Typical classic Roman guard. You'd put four soldiers directly in front of the thing that was being guarded, and the remaining 12 would fan out in a, in a circular perimeter to protect that which was being sealed. Uh, now, one thing you need to know about Judea in the first century. This is their Iraq. This is their Afghanistan. These are the best soldiers Rome has. Judea is a nightmare for the Roman army. The Jews are constantly rebelling. Pontius Pilate is a very capable commander. We know a little bit about his life from the writings of, of Roman historians um, and the armies that were underneath his command. He's got the 10th legion under his command. He's got the 4th legion under his command. I think those are the two legions. These are crack troops. They're the best soldiers Rome has because the Jews are constantly engaging in insurrections. So they put their best soldiers there. These are not fly-by-night rent-a-cops. These are crack troops. And here's the thing. When these 16 soldiers are sent out to protect this tomb, if what they're protecting is stolen, what do you think happens to them? The Roman army field manuals are very clear. The Roman soldier who falls asleep on guard duty is to be burned alive in their clothes. So these guys are highly motivated to protect, highly motivated to protect what's in that tomb. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. By the way, interesting study, just a little bunny trailer. Look at the four Gospels. Look at the women who are in front of the cross. You want to do a real interesting study? There's almost always, I think in three of the Gospels, there are four women mentioned, but there's different aspects about these women that are mentioned. If you theorize that the four women mentioned in each of the Gospels are the exact same four women, 
it really opens up a whole set of dynamics about the relationships between these four women and that some of the apostles may in fact have been Christ's cousins. It's a great study. I'm just throwing that out to you as Mother's Day is coming up. Just do a study of the four women at the cross. Um, but by the way, the girls have the guts. They're the ones who stay by the cross and they're the one, first ones who come to the tomb. Um, now as the after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, by the way, before we read his answer to the women, you've got to love angels, right? I just said to you before, it took about 20 guys to move the stone. One little old angel. Well, nothing little or old about an angel. I guess they're old, but one old angel comes down and he flicks the stone back, right? And as the old theologians used to say, the old brethren used to say, why is he rolling the stone back? It's not to let Christ out, it's to let them in, right? So he comes down. By the way, one angel, one night, sent by the Lord when the Assyrians are laying siege to Jerusalem, right? What does a one angel do one night? Kills 185,000 Assyrian crack troops. These angels are, are heavy duty customers. And they're on your side. Anyway, the angel, watch this answer. Tell me that angels don't watch us. The scripture says, right? Angels watch the local meeting. Angels learn about God by looking at us the way we learn about God by looking at the, the Bible. How do angels learn about God by looking at us? You understand angels would not understand experientially anything about God's grace or mercy. They don't experience God's mercy. The angels that fell, guess where they're going? Lake of fire forever. But they look at us, redeemed beings who also fell, and we get saved and they learn something about God. They learn that God's character is merciful. So they learn by looking at us. That's why uh, Scripture says, ladies with the head covering, teach the angels. Uh, anyway, something for another time, sorry. Uh, angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Watch this. He is not for, he's not here, for he is risen, as he said. If I can say this reverently, I think he's given them a little dig. He told you he's going to rise from the grave. Why are you surprised? By the way, one of the angels, well, this same angel, is going to say to Mary Magdalene, Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen from the grave. I think that angel is sending a message to Peter. You denied Lord Friday? I'm not numbering you with his disciples. I think he's sending them a little message. Uh, maybe reading a little bit too much into it. But I think the angels were watching intently what took place that Friday. They're just waiting for the order to go wipe out the Roman army, right? Waiting for the order to wipe out those people crucifying the Lord. And they're not giving that order. And they're watching these people who should have been faithful to him flee like rats. I think they watch what we do. Anyway, I'm getting off on many bunny trails here. Um, he is not here for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Well, what are our dear Roman soldiers doing while all this is going on? By the way, good evidence to suggest that many elders in the first century church, many elders were Roman soldiers who got saved. It's uncanny when you study this kind of thing. How many of the first believers uh, were Roman army guys? Um, subject for another time. Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. These guys were scared to death. The scripture says they quaked with fear. They were frozen. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Hang on a second. Why didn't the Roman soldiers go to Pilate? Why didn't they go to their own chain of command to say that, you're not going to believe what we just saw? Because what do you think the Roman army is going to do when these guards come in and say, oh, by the way, you're not going to believe this, we saw an angel roll back a stone and Jesus' body is gone. What are they worried is going to happen? They're going to get burned in their clothes. So they go to the Jewish leadership. Now here's the thing that has always baffled me. Well, it doesn't baffle me. But I've glossed over it. Look at the priest's reaction. They tell the chief priests all the things that happened. And what is the chief priest's response? The chief priest's response is not, 
you're lying to me. You must have fallen asleep on the job. Wouldn't that be your response? Well, for one thing, they know that these soldiers are the best in the world. They know what's likely to ha- what's going to happen to them if they fail on the duty. I almost think these priests kind of expected this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But look what they instantly do. And this is going on in moments. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole them away while we slept. Had a Jewish lawyer tell me once that he thought this was the funniest thing, the funniest testimony in the history of the world, that you can testify what took place while you were sleeping. (laughs) See, remember, let me go back to my point about the elders and the chief priests, right? They had just watched Jesus for three and a half years do what? Every miracle under the sun. They saw him feed the 5,000. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw him do all these things. In fact, one of the best proofs that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, one of the best proofs is read Jewish first century writings about Christ. you know what the uh, Talmud says about Jesus? He worked wonders and was a miracle worker. He did it through the power of the devil. By the way, your Bible says the same thing. They accused Christ of doing these things through the power of the devil. That is great proof that he did the miracles. When his enemies are saying, yeah, he did the miracles, but he did it through the devil. It's great proof. I'm going to show you a a couple of quotes from uh, Jewish writings a little bit later on. um, So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. I've read a number of commentators on this passage, and they think that the Jewish money or I'm sorry, the, the priest's money wasn't able to save these Roman soldiers. I disagree with that because I don't think the Lord's miracle would have resulted in anyone's death. Just a thought. But anyway, let's keep reading. Um, so we've looked at the seal, we've looked at the stone, and we've looked at the Roman soldiers. How do we know the tomb was in fact empty? How do we know it's not just a bunch of made-up stuff that's put in the Gospels that really didn't take place? You're saying, Rob, you're basing an awful lot on these four Gospels. Well, for one thing, I think this book has been demonstrated to be reliable. But putting that aside, let's look at the evidence outside of the Bible. How do we know the tomb was empty? We know it because of historian accounts from the first century, because of the accounts of antagonists, and because of the empty tombs, uh, the empty tomb that's in Israel. I'll come back to what I mean by the empty tombs in a second. Uh, This is from Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian living in the first century. By the way, a lot of what we know about Rome's occupation of of Judea, Palestine, comes from him. About this time arose on occasion for new disturbances a certain Jesus, a wizard of a man, if indeed he may be called a man, who is the most monstrous of men whom his disciples call a son of God as having done wonders such as no man has ever done. This is a Jewish writer, not a Christian, writing in the first century. He was saying, look, Jesus was a monstrous man, not monstrous like a monster, but monstrous and tremendous, because he did amazing wonders. He's basically testifying to the fact that Jesus did miracles. He was, in fact, the teacher of astonishing tricks to such men as accept the the abnormal with delight. And he seduced many Jews and many also of the Greek nation, and was regarded by them as the Messiah. I've taken out one of the, a couple of sentences that don't really add to it, just to fit it on this one slide. And when, on the indictment of the principal men among us, Pilate had sentenced him to the cross, still those who beforehand, before had admired him did not cease to rave. For it seemed to them that having been dead for three days, he had appeared to them alive again, as the divinely inspired prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And even now the race of those who are called Messianists after him is not extinct. This is a Jewish historian who's basically saying that tomb was empty. He appeared alive to them again. And in fact, it kind of implies that he thinks he really did appear alive. Um, now, skeptics down through the years have said, you know what, there's no possible way that Josephus wrote that. Wrote that. But here's the problem. The oldest copies of the antiquities we have They all have this quote in it. This is what he wrote. A Jewish historian saying that that tomb was empty. And it looks like he rose from the grave. It's not just them, by the way. This is from the Toledot Yeshu. 
It's a Jewish document, and by the way, it's some of the most blasphemous things you'd ever read about Christ. It hates Jesus Christ. It's a great source for us, though, to see what happened in the first century from their perspective. Yeshu was put to death on the sixth hour on the eve of the Passover and of the Sabbath. When they tried to hang him on a tree, it broke. For when he had possessed the power, he had pronounced by the ineffable name that no tree should hold him. This term ineffable name in ancient Jewish writings, by the way, we've got a copy of this that goes back to about the third century. We know its origin traces into the first century, but we haven't found the first century copy yet. Um, in Jewish reckoning, the ineffable name was a mystical name that if somebody knew the ineffable name of God, they could raise people from the grave. This is what Jewish mysticism taught. It's a bunch of gobbledygook, but I want you to understand this. The people writing this believed that if you had the power of the ineffable name, you could raise people from the grave. Look who they're saying had the power of the ineffable name. Yeshu had the power of the ineffable name. It's an admission that Christ raised people from the grave. You see that? It's pretty powerful stuff. Anyway, let's put it aside. Just trying to get to the proof that that grave was empty. Um, forget this. Uh, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. They buried him outside the city. On the first day of the week, his bold followers came to Queen Helena with the report that he who was slain was truly the Messiah and that he was not in his grave. He had ascended to heaven as he had prophesied. Diligent search was made, and he was not found in the grave where he had been buried. So lots of weird things going on in this passage. Um, for one thing, they've got the wrong leader's name in, in uh, Palestine at the time. Put that aside. The main thing I want to show you is that early Jewish sources admit that the tomb was empty. So you've got proof outside of the Bible, a Jewish historical source, and a Jewish religious source that confirms that Christ's tomb was empty when he rose. Um, by the way, most Protestants will say that Christ rose at the garden tomb. Uh, he was buried in the garden tomb and rose from the grave there. Uh, Roman Catholics and Orthodox will say that no, it was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, I'll use the words of the curator at the garden tomb. They're not sure where Christ was buried, but they know this. Both tombs are empty. <laughs> so, um, anyway. What about eyewitness testimony? What about eyewitnesses that, that uh, claim to have seen the risen Christ? This is 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Then by the twelve. By the way, the twelve, it means the twelfth apostle that was chosen, Matthias, right, to replace Judas, uh, also was a witness, eyewitness to the Lord. He, after that, He was seen by over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. What He's saying is, look, most of these folks are still alive today. You can go interview them. You can go talk to them but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James. Who's James? He's the guy who writes the epistle. He's also the Lord's half-brother. Then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So there are a whole bunch of witnesses, or at least people who claim to be witnesses. How do we know these eyewitnesses really... How do we know this is not just in the Bible, that these eyewitnesses, that it's just not made up, that it's only in the Bible? How do we know that there really were eyewitnesses? You know, because of ancient writings, historical writings. Ignatius, he's living right after the time Christ was crucified. He knows Peter. He writes in a letter to the Smyrnians. Smyrna? Smyrnians, right? For I know that after his resurrection also he was still possessed of the flesh, and I believe that he is so now. When, for instance, Jesus came to those who were with Peter... He said to them, lay hold, handle me, and see that I am not in corporal spirit. And immediately they touched him and believed in being convinced by both his flesh and spirit. Ignatius is basically saying, look, I spoke to Peter. Peter said he saw Christ rise from the grave. So you've got evidence outside the Bible of people who are saying, look, these guys claim to have seen the risen Christ. Polycarp does the same thing, so does Clement. 
Polycarp knew John and Clement. By the way, Clement is mentioned in your Bible in Philippians chapter 4. He, if you read the context of this whole letter, Clement is talking about how Paul told him he saw the risen Lord. Polycarp, in the context of this letter, is talking about how John told him he saw the risen Lord. The point I'm just making is this. Your Bible is not the only source saying that these guys claim to have seen the risen Lord. There are plenty of historical documents from the first century that also make that claim. One of the best evidences of this is how these lives were changed. You have these guys who are fleeing like rats the the day Christ is crucified. These same guys, 50 days later, are standing in the midst of Jerusalem saying preaching in front of these priests, preaching in front of the whole nation that's come to Jerusalem. Look, Christ rose from the grave. Something happened that changed their lives. So they went from cowards to these brave, brave men. Skeptics went to advocates. Who were skeptics? James and Judah are his half-brothers, right? If you read in the Gospels, you could tell his brothers and his sisters don't believe him at all. They think he's he's nuts. That's what the Scripture says. Well, it doesn't say nuts, but they thought he was beside himself. They thought he was out of his mind. Um, that's the New York version of the Bible. That he was nuts. Um, these same guys later on are going to be writing epistles about the risen Lord. And of course, belligerents went to champions. Paul was a first century terrorist. He kills you if you don't believe what he believes. I mean, he killed lots of Christians. He becomes the greatest champion the body of Christ has ever produced. How do we know they weren't lying? To me, this is outside of the Bible, this is the best evidence that Christ rose from the grave. Is Roman persecution techniques. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan. Uh, Pliny the Younger, you ever hear Mount Vesuvius, the volcano that blows up in Italy? The reason we so know so much about Mount Vesuvius is because Pliny the Younger is the one who writes it. His, older, his uncle, Pliny the Elder, was the head of the Roman Navy in the first century. He was the senior most admiral. And uh, when they try to rescue uh, Romans who are dying in front of Vesuvius, his uncle actually dies. About 79 AD, I think, is when the eruption took place. Um, by the way, Drusilla in the Bible, one of the Roman governor's wives, she dies at Vesuvius. Um, all this stuff kind of weaves together. But anyway... Pliny is regarded as, he's, he's a brutal Roman governor. Later on, he's made a, a governor over uh, Bithynia and Turkey. I'm sorry, yeah, Bithynia in uh, Turkey. And he is a brutal governor, but he also happens to be a very accurate writer. A volcanologist will say his writings of what took place off of Vesuvius during the eruption are some of the best writings of antiquity of what happens to a volcano when it explodes. He's an excellent writer. And we've got his letters when he was a Roman governor writing to Emperor Trajan about what to do with the Christians as you're killing them. Look at this letter. He's starting to be bothered by how many Christians he's killing. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I've observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. So if he says, you're going to claim to be a Christian. I'm going to get you to change your mind about that. One of the things that we know he's interrogating them on is the resurrection. Believe Christ rose from the grave? Believe Christ rose from the grave? Change your mind. It's going to hurt. So watch this. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There are others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. So basically he's saying, look, if they're a Roman citizen and they claim to be a Christian, I'm going to send them to you. You can deal with them. That's what Paul did, right? Paul was a Roman citizen. This emperor can't put him to death. He's got to send them out to Rome. But if you're not a Roman citizen, now you're mine. Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. It's such an interesting document. He's basically saying that neighbors would start to accuse their neighbors of being Christians so they could get them out of the way. Um, So it's such an interesting historical piece. Anyway, he goes on to say, Those who denied that they were or had been Christians 
when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with the statues of the gods and moreover cursed Christ. Before we read this last red statement, now you're all reading the last red statement. Before we read that, I want you to understand this. He's basically saying to them, curse Christ, in context, deny the resurrection, and worship Trajan. You've got to love this statement. What a testimony to the early church, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These people went to their deaths testifying for Christ. Now let me set this up again because I'm going to show you what happened to all the apostles. The apostles claim to be eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. The apostles believe that his bodily resurrection proves everything that Christ did. They believe that his bodily resurrection from the grave proved everything about Christ that he did. Here's the point. You don't die for a lie. There are plenty of people who will die for something they believe to be true, but don't know, in fact, it's not true. Many Muslims have died for their faith. They believe it's true. Many Hindus have died for the faith. They believe it's true. Nazis died for their faith. They believe their stuff was true. But none of them died for something they absolutely knew was not true. You follow me? You don't die for something you know is a lie. Here's what happened to the apostles. Remember, these are guys who are saying, I saw him rise from the grave and it proves what he said about himself. All this comes from historical sources outside of the Bible. These are either secular historians or early church writers. Andrew was crucified on an olive tree in Achaia by Roman army, uh, which is Greece. Bartholomew was whipped and crucified upside down, upside down in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. And by the way, we think he probably was dead because... Hippolytus says he was actually thrown off the pinnacle of the temple, fell about 100 feet. So he probably was, if he was still alive, that's 10 stories, I doubt he was even alive. But they stoned him to death after he felt, was thrown off the temple. James, the son of Zebedee, was run through with a sword by Herod, and you know that from Acts chapter 12. John was banished to the Greek isle of Patmos, but was later released due to old age and died at Ephesus. We think John spent at least a decade, if not more, in prison. Matthew appears to have died from a sword wound received in Ethiopia. Peter was crucified upside down near the modern location of the Vatican. By the way, do you know that history says that Peter died, we think the date is in 67 AD. It's either 66, 67, or 68 AD. But we know from Roman writings that Peter is crucified upside down at the spot where the Vatican is today. And the same day, the very self-same day that Peter's being crucified upside down, what's going on that very same day? Paul is being beheaded few miles away. What a blow to the church, right? You're losing Peter and Paul the exact same day? Was it a blow to the church? Who's the one animating the church? Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit. Right? Blow to the church just kept growing like crazy. Anyway, Peter's crucified upside down where the Vatican is today. Philip was crucified in Hierapolis, Turkey. Simon the Zealot, by the way, if you had to pick an apostle who was going to die a bloody death, it wouldn't have been the Zealot. He's the only one that dies of old age. I think God has a sense of humor. <laughs> By the way, if you want to see the assembly, first assembly in the history of the world, you go to Jerusalem. We know where it is now. Archaeologists know where the first church ever met. Um, it's actually, the tour guides will tell you this, but it's where King David's tomb is. And they have the wrong place for King David's tomb, but if you come with me to Israel... <laughs> Thaddeus was martyred in Iran. Thomas was thrust through with the spirit. Kalamine in India. So all you Indian brethren, your tradition goes back further than just about anyone's. He, he takes the gospel to India. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas, Judas, was stoned. Although, you know what? Recent history suggests he probably was beheaded there's two guys that it's debated exactly what happened to them. We know that Matthias was stoned. The other one is uh, Barnabas. We know Barnabas died on Cyprus, but recent evidence has suggested that he was boiled alive. And remember, what's being said to these guys? Renounce Christ. Deny that he rose from the grave. And they don't deny it. 
They're guys who are saying, we saw the risen Christ. They're being presented with a choice. Deny it. Save your life. You don't die for that which you know is a lie. Uh, James, the Lord's brother, was stoned to death by Jews in Jerusalem. Jude, the Lord's, uh, these are their half-brothers, was shot with arrows under Trajan, the very same emperor that Pliny is writing to. Paul was beheaded along the Ostian Way. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, by the way, talk about truth, strange, history is strange. The Venetians actually declare war on Egypt hundreds of years later because they want his body. Um, and now the body of Mark supposedly was taken to Venice. Um, who knows if it was the right one. But anyway, we know this from numerous Coptic sources that he was dragged by horses to his death. Luke uh, was probably hung in Greece, although this is not conclusive. Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7. And like we said, we already talked about Barnabas. You get my point. You don't die for that which you know is a lie. There's a great line that Chuck Colson has. All know Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was an attache in the White House. He was a, a, a security advisor to Richard Nixon. You know, the Republican Party and Nixon, they'd broken into the Watergate Hotel to spy on the Democrats ahead of the 1972 election. This finally starts coming out uh, after the election was, was run by the Republicans in a landslide. And Colson says there's only seven guys in the entire world that knew that they had broken into the Watergate Hotel. And he said, think about this. All we needed to do was for the seven of us to shut our mouths. And he goes, think about this. What was the worst that was going to happen to us? You know, we're probably going to be stripped of our position in the government. We, a few of us were going to end up going to jail. But none of us was going to face our torture. None of us was going to face losing our lives. The most most of us were going to face was shame and embarrassment and losing our jobs. And yet every one of them in about two weeks after the Watergate scandal breaks starts spilling the beans. He said that in his mind some of the best proof that Christ rose from the grave apart from the scripture is this. You just don't die for that which you know is a lie. Anyway, we're out of time. Um, last couple things, circumstantial evidence. We won't even get to the Shroud of Turin, which I actually have come to believe is the real thing, but subject for another time. Let me show you some early church practices. For some reason, overnight, the early Christians changed their day of worship from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. For some reason, the early Christians overnight start to advocate believers' baptism, which is a picture of what? Death, burial, resurrection. The early Christians move away from celebrating Passover. Think of the early Christians are all Jews, right? Yeah, for some reason, they move away from selling Passover and start to replace it with a focus on Easter, or what we call Resurrection Day. This is interesting circumstantial evidence. There's other interesting circumstantial evidence, a little more creepy. It's this. For some reason, in the mid-30s AD, the Roman army issues the Nazareth inscription. And the Nazareth inscription is called that because it was parked in Nazareth. It's a big stone. What do the Romans believe about Christ? He's in Nazareth. He's from Nazareth, right? So, in Nazareth, the Roman army sets up this inscription that says, don't you dare disturb a grave. Going forward, any grave that's disturbed will be punishable by death. You understand this is great circumstantial evidence that the Romans couldn't figure out what happened to that body. If they actually issue a decree saying don't steal from a grave. Last one is expert testimony. By the way, this is an interesting study if you're ever inclined to do this. You ever see all the people who came to faith in Christ as a result of studying the resurrection. And you could, you could come up with a list, of, just do an internet search on this. C.S. Lewis says he came to faith in Christ because he studied the facts of the resurrection. Francis Collins, I know we talked about him yesterday, but about 10 years ago he decided he was going to study whether or not the resurrection took place or not. He's the one ahead of the Human Genome Project. And what convinced him to put his faith in Christ, and again he's got some things that are wacky in his beliefs, but he studied the resurrection and he's convinced that Christ rose from the grave. So here's a master author, here's a master biologist, here's a master lawyer, Chuck Colson. He gets saved, if you read his writings, it's because he began to study the resurrection. Abraham Lincoln studied the resurrection. He was challenged whether or not the resurrection took place or not by a Presbyterian minister after the death of his son in the height of the Civil War. And we think, because he's written this and it's in an inscription in the library across from where he was assassinated, that he says it was the resurrection. When he studied the resurrection, he decided to put his trust in Christ. Words roughly to that effect. 
Abraham Lincoln, Malcolm Muggeridge, Josh McDowell, William Ramsey. William Ramsey is the father of archaeology. He's a British explorer who basically was the first one to define archaeological practices in the 1800s. He went over to study whether or not the book of Acts was real, and he started to study whether or not it was possible the resurrection of Christ took place. Guy gets saved. And he's the father of modern archaeology. By the way, Bible scholars are the fathers of the entire field of archaeology. Modern archaeology was birthed in, in Palestine in the 1800s by uh, British Bible scholars trying to find where the places were. He goes over there to disprove the Bible and to study the resurrection, and he ends up getting saved as a result. Hugh Ross, astrophysicist, says it was the study of the resurrection that convinced him Christ was God. Lee Strobel, a lawyer, the editor of Chicago Tribune, said it was the study of the resurrection that convinced him Christ was God. Lou Wallace, what did Lou Wallace write? Ben-Hur. That's his book. And countless others. These are people from all different walks of life who sat down initially as skeptics who didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. And by the time they had examined the evidence, they became firebrand evangelists. Many of them, at least. Christ rose from the grave. He's the first fruits. There's a resurrection. Actually, there's a resurrection coming for all of us, isn't there? Everybody who's ever lived is going to be living eternity somewhere. Just where? God is a gentleman. He will not force himself upon you. He gives you the opportunity to either believe him or not. He's giving you a whole bunch of evidence. At the end of the day, you know, people are not argued into heaven. At the end of the day, you've got to decide whether you're going to believe this stuff or not. Um, are you going to put your trust in Christ? Are you going to believe that he died for the cross and the grave and that it was proven by his resurrection from the grave? Um, that's really the choice that's before you. Uh, and time is running out. So let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Thank you. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the proof of the resurrection. And Father, we thank you for those martyrs. We talk about them like they're in the past tense. And yet, Father, we realize probably today somewhere in the world some Christians dying for their faith. Father, we thank you for the apostles, eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, each one of which uh, went to their graves saying, yep, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and I saw him with my own two eyes. Or two eyes. So, Father, I pray that we would live our lives in light of the resurrection, not encumbered by the sorrows and frailties of this life, but bold with this message of hope, uh, bringing it to this lost and dying world, their need to believe in the risen Savior. Lift all these things up, Father, in Christ's precious name. Amen.